0: You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery or for more free audio content, please visit discoverybristol.com. This is an exciting week. If you guys don't know why... Because we had alluded to it earlier, this is kickoff week for WindShape, right? And it is awesome. I'm super pumped because uh, starting at midnight last night, all across the country, kids are getting signed up. And here's something cool, all right? So this is the camp. If you don't know what WindShape is, it is a camp that's held at Keene University. And it is for kindergartners through eighth grade. And it is amazing. And it's something that our church is fully behind. Our church is the host church for this. But we work with other churches. And wind shape is incredible. And here's the exciting part: last year, 2018, 17 kids accepted Jesus at Keene University during that week. Is that awesome? Right? And so, that's it's so cool to think that kickoff week, uh, the 17 kids at our camp accepted Christ. But then there's a camp uh, a couple hours away that kids accepted Christ, and a camp down in Georgia that kids accepted Christ, and a, ki- a camp up north that kids accepted Christ. And to think that this happened all across the country last summer and it's going to happen again. And so it's exciting. Uh, I don't know, I'm excited when you think that there's a parent or a grandparent or an aunt and uncle that's signing up a child this week. Maybe sign them up at midnight, just waiting for to hit click. Maybe it's this week that that kid is going to have their eternity changed this summer. Isn't that awesome? It's a powerful thing to think that that's what this week is. And so uh, if you are that grandparent or parent or aunt or uncle, if you have a kid that you could sign up for WindShape, I want to encourage you, the camp is amazing. And uh, we have people that are even signing up, uh, has a sign-up booth at the connection point on your way out. But it's exciting to think that we're going to be part of this amazing thing of WindShape. It's just an exciting time. I feel here at Discovery. We had a leadership retreat last weekend or or two weekends ago, and it was neat just to be able to talk and hear about what God has been doing in the lives of individuals and in the lives of this church. And then to come last week, if you were here, you know what this blue sign is in front of me, right? It says, pray for our community. And if you weren't here, let me tell you a little bit about this. Last week, Elliot gave a great message encouraging us to pray like the early believers, The early church was facing a time of persecution from outside that Peter and John had been arrested. And they were set free. And so the believers come together. And at a time when they should be scared to not to proclaim Jesus' name. At a time when they should be scared, when they should be running away, when they should be coming within. They gather together and pray for boldness. Pray for boldness that they could speak to their community. To pray that they could be a testimony to who Jesus was, that they would be bold enough to be arrested again if need be. And said that when they prayed, the the power of the Holy Spirit came and the ground shook. What an amazing thing. And so last week we had little prayer triangles and we prayed here that morning about different things from, from within our own little community to across to the ends of the world. And we prayed for our Jerusalem. As we go we're going through Acts and the stories begin and the, the story of the early church starts in Jerusalem and that's where they were praying for, for boldness. And and so this is what we had was to pray for our community and we encourage people to take these signs and <coughs> excuse me, and we still have about seventy left at the back door. And I want to encourage you, if everyone in here would take one more sign and put it maybe in your yard or put it uh, in in your place of business or just along the street or maybe, you know, that neighbor that just drives you crazy, put it in their yard, only turn it facing their house. And maybe it'll be like a reminder every time they look out. Oh, yeah, okay, I should pray. And whatever that would be, but to to be able to set an example to pray. The first verse that we're looking at today, we're in chapter 4 of Acts. The first verse is verse 32. And it begins with all the believers were one in heart and mind. And I share this verse because as we have kickoff week for Windshape, it's not about denominational lines, it's not about state lines. It's not about economic lines. There's going to be kids coming from wealthy homes and from poor homes. Kids coming from a Methodist church and a Baptist church. Kids coming from different states all across the lines are all coming together at these camps because they are in one heart and one mind. They are the believers coming together. And so this sign, we intentionally left off Discovery Church's name. I don't know if many of you noticed that. A couple of people asked me about it. This was a decision that we met as a staff and we met as the missions team and we said we don't want to have Discovery Church's name on there because it's not about us. It's about God's kingdom. It's about the believers coming together as one heart and mind. And you know how like if you buy a new red car you notice everyone's got a red car and you just can notice all these cars Well, it's been the same thing with these signs. Since we put out these signs, I noticed four other churches that that have a church sign. And and I'm not putting them down. And one of them, it's for a soup bean supper. And so I'm pretty pumped about that. But but these churches, it's encouraging them to come to that church, which is a great thing. But that wasn't the focus of this. And so our name is intentionally not on there because we just want people to come together as believers, one heart and one mind, praying for our community. So if you haven't grabbed one of these signs, or if you did and you're willing to put up another one, please grab one on your way out as we go out and proclaim this. And so we've been going through acts, and there's been a lot of great things uh, uh, times that we've looked at the believers coming together and they're excited and they're praying, and we've encouraged with the signs and with our prayer triangles. and we looked at Acts 242, and they came together for the teaching the apostles' teaching, study that, and devote themselves to prayer and devote themselves to the breaking of bread, meaning fellowship into the Lord's Supper. And so we looked at that and we had a pancake breakfast, right to, to include the fellowship. And we've looked at these things that are kind of exciting at the beginning of Acts. But now we're going to get to chapter 5, and we're going to see something that's not as exciting. We're going to see some of the persecution of the church. From here, we're going to start seeing a shift. And there's going to be outside forces. Satan is attacking this church full throttle. And that's what we're about to see. And not just attacking from the outside, but today we're going to see attacking from within so if you have your bibles open it to the end of chapter 4 we're going to begin by looking at chapter 4 verse 32 all the believers were one in heart and mind no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own but they shared everything they had with great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the lord jesus in God's grace. And some translations here echo that word great. So imagine that. And God's great grace was so powerfully at work in them all. That there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time those who owned land or houses sold them. Brought the money before, from the sales and put them at the apostles feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had a need. Now this Section could be taken out of context. We had shared that several weeks ago when we looked at Luke's example of this before. But this isn't a Christian communism or anything. This wasn't a requirement that everyone had to sell what they had and give it uh, and, join, and put it all in the central pot. This was a voluntary thing. As we've said before, that this is coming after one of the festivals, and so there's many Jews that are now in Jerusalem and that have come to accept Jesus as their Savior, that have listened to Peter's teaching, and it said that the church was growing by thousands at that time. And so you've got a lot of people that have been traveling from a great distance and are now here, and they only brought the provisions they had to be here for a short time, and now they've stayed longer and longer and longer. And so area believers there in Jerusalem would take their money and take their extra land and sell it. Or maybe believers that were selling land back home were taking it, sending word, getting that sold, and bringing the funds in and saying, here, there's a need. There's a lot of believers here that don't have a place to stay. They don't have a way to get food, a way to get clothing and protection. Let me sell the land because there's a need and I can take care of this. And so this wasn't a requirement, this isn't something that that you're worried, okay, I know where this is going, offering time, he's going to ask for the deeds of our home. That's not the case, right? That wasn't even the case at this time. They weren't required to do this. This was a voluntary thing. But I think Luke points out this detail for a reason. Luke is the one writing this. Remember from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Luke is writing this book as his second book, the book of Acts of the church. And he's telling us what the church was like in, in the early days. And he could give lots of details. He could tell us the details about what a service looked like. And, and if they sang songs, what song it was. And if they met for pancake breakfasts, you know, what the pancake breakfast was and, and so forth. He could give us all these details. And he didn't. But he does give us some details once in a while. And this is one of those. And I believe it's for a reason. In fact, he gives us its detail twice. These were bookends he tells about the believers selling their belongings and taking care of the people's needs. That there wasn't a need among the people. He tells that story before the story of John and Peter healing the crippled man and being arrested and set free. And then he tells it again at the end. To give us this idea. To remind us of the importance of what this is. And I believe he's echoing back to the early covenant community. The early community that God established for the Israelites to say that this is our community. This is my plan for for my people. And that he's saying that this is what it now looks like. It's changed. We're no longer following the Jewish faith. We no longer have to, to, to go and worship in the synagogue. Jesus has come. He has fulfilled. He has been the sacrificial lamb. And this is now the community. This is the covenant promise that Jesus had, that God had in place. And so he's echoing back to this early time, and he reminds us of this, and he even says the words, there was no needs among the, the people, echoing back to the idea we find in, early on in Deuteronomy, chapter 15. In this chapter, God is laying out the foundations of this early community and what that looked like. And one of the things he talks about is every seven years, you're, you're to release the debts to, that the debts would be set free. And so every seven years, the, the idea would be that I'd get to start anew, I'd start fresh. My debts were wiped free. Uh, what I owed other people, they would be washed clean. And now I could start anew and start forward. And in that Deuteronomy passage, after the after seven years, it says that there will be no needy person among you because the Lord is sure to bless you in the land that the Lord God has given you. So this is the covenant community that God was trying to establish. And now, Jesus has come. And it's not every seven years your debts are wiped free. Because of his death and resurrection, our sins are wiped clean. So this community of believers have the freedom from their sins. Those have been wiped clean. And in light of that, Luke points out that here they are. They're selling their things that so no needy, there is no needy person among you. Referencing back to this early covenant people. And so I share this because I wanted to see the significance of what this early church was. I think Luke is trying to help us see the significance of what this early church was. That this is God's bride. This is God's plan. This is his plan moving forward. Is this thing that we're establishing here in the book of Acts. And this thing that you and I are trying to copy now 2,000 years later. That this is his bride. This is a special thing. This is holy. That the people would come together, and when there's a need, they take care of it. That they come together, and they worship, and they devote themselves to teaching, and to prayer, and to fellowship, and communion. That this is a holy thing. And so Luke is laying this out for us, that we would be able to see this, and get on board with this idea. To be able to see the significance of what the church is. And I make this point significant because we're about to see an attack on the church from within. From within God's bride. And so we move on in the story. And Luke gives us an example, kind of a foreshadowing of a character that we're going to see later on in Acts. And he gives us this in a transitional spot. So it kind of relates back to what he's telling us about selling everything. And it gives us a little bit of glimpse of the why in chapter 5. So verse 40, uh, chapter 4, verse 36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, who the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas is a guy that we're going to see further on. He's got a missionary's heart. He's a a man of great encouragement. He goes off on a missionary journey with Paul and then with John Mark. He has a heart for God. A heart for Jesus. You see this in his encouragement. You see this in his observation of a need. He's a Levite, which meant that he couldn't own land. Not there in Palestine, at least. And so they point out that he's from Cyprus. Luke points that out. So that way we know, okay, this is where the land has been sold. That he probably sent word and had land sold in Cyprus. And the, the, the messenger comes back with the money. And he presents that to the apostles and says, here, do with it what you need. And you can tell, I'm sure the community was excited as as we would be if we were there. And and everyone's like, oh man, Barnabas, that's awesome. Thank you so much. And because of this, this group of widows are going to be cared for. And this group of orphans can have food. And this group that's just been without a home, we can find them shelter. And all this, thank you so much, Barnabas. Thanks for doing this. And so Luke gives us this little transition as we now get to chapter 5. Honesty and integrity. Two things that we're going to see here in chapter 5 that are of great need. A lesson that we all have to learn at some point, right? A lesson that some of us are still trying to learn. A lesson that, uh, that if you're a parent, you have to teach your kids time and again, Almost every night I feel like that I'm, I'm teaching my eight-year-old boy a, a lesson on honesty and integrity. When I say, did you brush your teeth? Yeah, yeah, I did. I was like, I can feel the toothbrush. All right, no, I didn't. And then he goes back up and, and brushes his teeth. And so this idea of honesty and integrity is a lesson that you teach kids and a lesson that my boy learned several months ago. We were at the gas station at Sam's, and uh, Isaiah and I were out there, and, and I was teaching him how to pump gas and, and what to do in the, in the hopes that someday I can just sit in the car and he'll take care of it, and so I was trying to teach him all these things, and at, while we're there, he sees a $20 bill on the ground, and he gets so excited, and he sees this folded $20 bill, and he's like, Dad, look, it's 20 bucks, and I was like, oh, that's awesome, but I knew what this was, all right, but he did not yet, and so I'm like, hey, why don't you pick it up, and he says, okay, and so he goes, and he gets it, and he's still so excited. He just found $20. And I say, oh, why don't you unfold it? And he opens it up and it's a gospel track, right? I don't know if you guys have ever come across those uh, where it looks like it's a $20 bill printed on the front and on the inside it's a track. And, and he says, what is this? And I was like, I know, buddy. And so um, I explained to him, I was like, oh, it's a track. He says, what are tracks? And so I tell him about how it's to profess Jesus, and they're all over, and you can find them on the ground or at any sporting event. Ladies, just so you know, every sporting event, there's for some reason one on the urinals. I don't get it. Um, I don't know. Like, I would never pick that up if there was a piece of paper on a urinal. But they're always there. And so I was telling him about where the tracks are and how to find them. And and that the point of it is that if someone's maybe struggling and and they're reminded of Jesus' love, or maybe they've walked away from Christ and, and this is a reminder to come back, or maybe they've never been walking with God in the first place and this would be groundbreaking to them. And he said, yeah, but so this is made by Christians, right, Dad? I said, yeah, they are. And he said, well, then why did they trick me? And I said, yeah, buddy. Sadly, sometimes Christians do that as well. This idea of honesty and integrity. It's easy for us to say this is what the world needs to learn, but this story, all this story takes place among the believers. This is a story that we need to learn, a story that we need to take hold of as we get to this in chapter 5. And so we see Satan's attack. And we see this, so the early church is beginning and Satan, in all his power, he knows where this is going, what the church is going to do. And so he's trying to stop the church. Imagine the, the desire that Satan has to end this right now. At this early stage of the church, every power that Satan has, every demon that he has, he's leading to to attack this early church, this early group of believers, to end this now because of what this is going to grow into over the next thousands of years, what the church, the impact the church would be. And so Satan has tried everything, and he initially has the two leaders, John and Peter, arrested, arrested for healing someone, right, doing something good, but he has them arrested by the same people that killed Jesus. Obviously, this is going to lead to their death. But it doesn't. The power of God comes in and it doesn't lead to their death. And so he's tried attacking from the outside. And when Satan can't get through and he can't get his ways, he'll often change his tactic. And so now he begins to attack from within, from among the believers. We get to Acts chapter 5, verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. I'm sure Barnabas' generosity was well known. As the believers would come and they would sell at various times their land, I'm sure it was an exciting time and people would be like, hey, Barnabas, way to go, that's awesome, good job. And so here you have this couple that sees the credit he's getting, that sees The excitement of the believers and pride sneaks in and jealousy creeps its way. They say, we got a piece of land. Why don't we sell it and and everyone will think highly of us. Everyone will be singing praises to us. And and I think we got to be very clear. Nowhere in the passage of what we've read, of what we've seen in the book of Acts up to this point or of what we read today, do they have to sell their land. This is not a requirement. It's not a requirement to give 100% of what they've sold. That was not wrong in what they did. Holding something back was not the, the, not the thing that we're about to see that was wrong. It was the dishonesty about what they've done that Jesus would frown upon. We see it here in verse 3. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold and after it was sold? Wasn't the money at your disposal? What made, what made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to man, to human beings, but to God. Peter isn't laying out the judgment. He's bringing the sin to light. That Ananias came and he said, Hey, I sold my land. Here's all the money I got for this. Which wasn't true. He held some back. And Peter says, wasn't it your money? This was your option. This is your choice. You didn't have to lie to us. But more importantly, you didn't have to lie to the Holy Spirit to say that this is what's happening. And so we're about to see this early church, this, <clears throat> this story of the believers and they're praying and great things are happening and the Holy Spirit comes and the ground's shaking. And now we're about to see, wow, this gets real here. In verse 5, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. So here he is, Ananias is faced with his sin, and God's not playing, and he's put to death. Usually at the beginning of a new period in the salvation history, this is often the case. That we see this in the Old Testament, that when the tabernacle was erected, Nadab and Abahu uh, were, were put to death for the false fire to the Lord, for a sacrifice they made. We see that in Leviticus 10. Or in Joshua 7, when the people are going into the promised land, Achan was killed for disobeying the orders. That there's often a very strict, very firm obedience required when there's a new stage of the salvation. And this is the early church. This is the bride of Christ. We can't have lying and deceit we can't have dishonesty and a lack of integrity in the bride of christ and so he falls down dead verse seven picks up about three hours later his wife came in not knowing what had happened peter asked her tell me is this the price you and ananias got for the land yes she said this is the price peter said to her how could you conspire to test the spirit of the lord listen The feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At this moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Remember, Luke is making sure we know this is a holy place. This is the presence of God is in this church, this body of believers is a holy place. Just as Moses found that it was holy ground and God told him to take off his sandals because he's in God's presence. Just as the guardian that was walking alongside the Ark of the Covenant where God resided, put up his hand to keep it from falling, instantly died because it was a holy place. Just as the priest, only the the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies in the temple, the inner area. And even then they would have a rope on them. In case they died, they could just be pulled out by the rope because it was a holy place. And now the Holy Spirit spirit has come and this church is the holy place and he is lying she is lying to the Lord she's lacking integrity he's lacking honesty before man and before the Lord and said that the whole of the people had great fear that this fear came upon them Uh, another word for this fear is great awe Great respect for the Lord. To see that this is a serious thing. To see that to abuse the church, to abuse God's creation, to abuse the holy covenant people, this is a bad thing. And I think, what if we had that great fear, that great awe, that great reverence when we commit sins? What if we realized that what we do in private or in public, represents God. What they did, they weren't just lying to man, they were lying to God. And when we do these things, we're not just lying to our fellow man, we're lying to God. What if the same consequences were there for us? I like to think many of us would would change and would stop sinning and stop sinning in private and stop sinning in public. That instead of calling ourselves Christian and then continuing to live in the sin, which is what Ananias and Sapphira did, that we would change our ways. But sadly, I think some people would just choose not to call themselves Christians and continue on in that path. But I think as we take a step back from this, we see God's desire is for us to be people of honesty and integrity. To our fellow man and to God. We can put up this, this facade. As Jesus would talk, talk to the Pharisees and call them hypocrites. That they would put up a mask. And they, they would act one way and they would act all holy. But that's not how they were. they would say that they were holy. And on the outside they would act like it. But their hearts were not. This is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Is it the story of us? Are our actions, does our heart, does our mind match when we claim that we're Christians? When we proclaim that we're following Jesus and we come to church on Sundays, does that mean on Monday when, there's, when God presents a need that we meet that need? When you see a coworker that just needs someone to talk to, do you go the other way because you just don't have time? Or when there's a need in your own home, are you there to help support your loved one? When when you're driving and you come up to a homeless man or this homeless woman is holding up a sign, do you reach in and grab a dollar or maybe a granola bar from your car to see the need? That we call ourselves Christians, but are we acting that way? Ananias and Sapphira are part of the believers. This story is for us. The story isn't about people that are outside of professing that they're Christians. They were believers, but they weren't living that way. And so this morning, we're going to transition into something we do every week. Some staples of our service. Offering, worship, communion. And I want to come to you and just ask that during this time, you be able to look inside yourself. And to give this time, to give this next 20 minutes with full integrity, with full honesty to God. That as we go into a time of offering... That you would be able to see that if God has placed it on your heart to give, that you give. that you follow through with what God has placed. That maybe that's financially or maybe God has placed on your heart that, you know what, they keep talking about needing help in the children's ministry and, and I think I could do that. Then maybe during this time of offering, it's just, you need to get up and go get the application to follow through with great honesty and integrity what God has. We see at the beginning of our message, at the beginning of these verses, that God came that with great power, the disciples testified. And it said that God's great grace came. And then at the end we see that they responded with great fear, with great awe, with great reverence. Let's come to this time of offering to see God's great power and his great grace. And let us come to this time of offering with great awe. And then as we go, and we're going to sing a song called Holy Ground. The church, this is holy ground. Let us sing as if we mean it. Let us sing with honesty and integrity. That if we're singing words that's not where your heart is, then then maybe you need to just pray. Because Jesus says in Matthew 15, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Let's not have that be the case for us. Sing with great honesty and integrity sing to the one of great power and great grace sing to him with great awe and then as we go into a time of communion we have communion every week where we take the bread and and he'll be passed to you and dip it in the juice to represent his body and his blood that was poured out for us on the cross and that morning in the empty tomb there was great power and there was great grace And so at that time this morning, I just want to encourage you to meditate on who he is with an honest heart. To set aside our sins and what we've been struggling with. And pursue him with a great integrity. With great fear and great awe. If you'll pray with me. Lord, thank you for your great power and your great grace. God, we come to you right now with great fear. God, we come to you with great awe in who you are. God, there might be people here that you're just working on our hearts. And we know our life hasn't been full of honesty and integrity. That we call ourselves Christians and we say we, we believe in you, but... The way we act at work, the way we act at home, that's not. That's not proclaiming who you are. And God I pray that this morning will be a changing point that we would no longer be lying, not just to man, but trying to lie to the Holy Spirit. And God let us see the uselessness of that waste. And God during this time of offering, during this time of worship, during this time of communion. God, let us reflect on the great power and grace and come to you with great awe. In your name.